Hope you'll take your Bibles and open to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2. We opened our service this morning with the hymn from the great hymn writer Charles Wesley. Hark the herald angels sing. Not only one of my favorite Christmas hymns, maybe one of my favorite hymns, period. I've read it before, but I took time this week to go back and to read again kind of the origin of the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And it said, written by Charles Wesley, an Englishman who was a leader, a minister during the time of the Great Awakening, so think 1700s. He's from England. He spent time in the States traveling around as an evangelist, as a missionary. Probably best known today for the hymns that he wrote. Think about this. He's credited with writing over 6,000 hymns. Not all hits, but some of them, many of them, we still sing today. One of the best known because of Christmas and because Christmas music is ubiquitous. Hark the herald angels sing. And one thing I was reminded of this week is that that was not actually the first line of that song. The way that Wesley wrote it was, Hark, how the welkin rings, glory to the king of kings. You may know what welkin is. That's why we don't sing it. <laughs> welkin, it means skies or heavens. So it's actually a beautiful line. Hark how the skies, the welkin rings. Glory to the king of kings. So think Psalm 19, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. That's how Wesley wrote it. But his friend, George Whitfield, the great reformer, evangelist, wanting to sing the song with folks, changed the line to what we know, much to the frustration of his friend Wesley. So he began singing, Hark, the Herald Angels Sing. He published it in hymn books. Wesley refused to sing it. In settings, if everyone else sang one way, he would sing the other. I'd say it's probably a good thing it was changed. While I like the beauty of the skies, maybe the hymn wouldn't have caught on if no one knew what the first line meant. I'm thankful that we have it, though. Like I said, one of my favorite hymns. Deserves probably to be sung other times than December. Packed full of truth. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that men no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. I love how succinctly and beautifully he states the reason Jesus came. Why was he born? He was born so that we could be born again. He was born so that we would not die. I especially love that second verse. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Four lines. We have one of the best summaries of who Jesus is and what it means that he came to earth. He's God, very God, but veiled in human flesh. He's incarnate. What does that mean? It's, a, it's the enfleshing of God. Incarnate deity. And he did not come reluctantly. 
This is biblical. We'll see it in just a minute in Philippians 2. He did not come reluctantly. It says he's pleased as man with men to dwell. He's Emmanuel. He is God with us. I'm thankful for the gift of songs. I'm thankful for the gift of words. I'm glad that there's people who can take words that we all use and arrange them in a beautiful way. But of course, we don't primarily sing this song or any song together as a church because of beauty. We sing songs like this because it reminds us of Christ. And in many ways, the beauty of the song reminds us of his beauty. These are means by which we rehearse, rehearse who God is and what he's done. What I want to suggest and what I was thinking about this week is that songs help us to behold Christ. If you're with us last week, you know we started our Advent season, and we're calling these weeks leading up to Christmas Beholding Christ. And the goal of this three-week period is to encourage us to think about who Jesus is and to stand in awe. I said it last week, in a time, in a year, in a season when there's so much uncertainty, we should be glad that we can come together and to fix our eyes on what's certain. In a season, in a year, in a time when there's been a lot of things that are bleak, we should be glad to come together and fix our eyes on what is beautiful. So we spent our time together last week being reminded that Jesus, the one who was born of Mary, in a stable, in Bethlehem, 2,000 years ago, was in fact the coming of God into the world. So we spent our time thinking about Jesus as God, and we said that he's come to reveal to us the glory of God. He's the glory of God revealed. I won't try to summarize everything we talked about last week, but that was the big idea, that Jesus is God And to see Jesus is to see God, and to see Jesus is to get a glimpse of the glory of God. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. This week our goal is the same. I want to encourage you to fix your eyes on Christ, but this week we're going to look at a different element of who Jesus is. Last week our emphasis was on Jesus as God, which remains true. This week we're going to focus our attention more on the reality that Jesus became a man. What does that mean? Why does it matter? And I will admit up front that this is one of the areas of our faith where we are left scratching our heads. We think of the Trinity, one God and three persons. We think of Jesus, one person with two natures, fully God, fully man. He was God, he became man. It's what we call the incarnation. I'll use that word this morning, incarnation. It's the enfleshing, it's the taking on of of flesh, that God came and he lived as the incarnate God. So we'll spend our time this morning considering what does it mean? What does it mean that God became incarnate? How did that happen? What took place And then, why does it matter? Our primary text this morning is in Philippians chapter 2, and the entire chapter is important and essential. Remember what Paul's doing in this context. He's instructing the Philippian believers 
on how they should relate to one another. He's encouraging them towards humility. He's encouraging them toward unity. And so he gives them the greatest example he could possibly give them. If you want to know what it looks like to be, hum- to be humble, to live in humility, to live in unity, look at Jesus. And then we have what's called, often referred to as the hymn of Christ, where he describes what Jesus did in humbling himself and becoming like us. You should read the whole chapter. We're not going to spend as much time this morning talking about how we should respond to the example, although that would be good homework for you. We're going to fix our eyes mainly on verses 5 through 8, what we learn about the coming of Jesus, God becoming man. So Philippians chapter 2, we will start reading in verse 5. Hear the word of God. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. May God add his blessing to the reading and to the preaching of his word. If we're going to accomplish our goal of beholding Christ. I hope that you've entered into me with, with me into this goal. I hope that you're, you're wanting this, to have your eyes, your hearts opened to seeing Jesus clearly. But if we're going to do that, we have to wrestle with this idea of Jesus becoming man. Our format will be similar to last week. Last week we asked, what is the glory of God? And then we asked, Why does it matter that Jesus came as the revelation of the glory of God? Two questions again this week. First, what does it mean that Jesus came to earth as a man? What is the incarnation? And then second, why do we celebrate the incarnation? Why does it matter? Why is it good news? So what is it and why does it matter? And Philippians 2 is one of the best texts we have to answer that first question. What is the incarnation? How did it happen? Like I said, Paul's aim is to give the Philippians an example. But his example is that of Jesus taking on flesh. You know, when we think of the Christmas story, many of us, if you went and asked someone, what's the story of Christmas? Most likely, they're going to start from the vantage point of earth. So they're going to talk about Mary and Joseph. We're going to walk with them to Bethlehem. We're going to see the stable. We're going to see the animals. We're going to see the birth of Christ. And that is a true story. We're going to look at it here in a couple weeks. What Philippians 2 does is it tells us the same story, but from a different perspective. We get the Christmas story, not from the vantage point of what's going on in Mary and Joseph's life, but we actually go back and we go into heaven and we start from a different place. Here's Jesus in heaven transitioning to earth. This is the prequel to the Mary and Joseph story. 
Where was Jesus before he came? Who was Jesus before he came? And what happened in his coming? Probably a part of the Christmas story we don't think about as much as we should. We get that story here in Philippians 2, and we won't parse every word and phrase, but I want us to consider what it means that Jesus left heaven and took on flesh. So we start in verse 5. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, and we'll stop there. What's Paul saying? What does it mean that Jesus was in the form of God? The English translation may add some confusion. When we say Jesus was in the form of God, we may, we may hear he resembled God or he shared some similarities with God. But in the form of God doesn't mean that he was some variety or version of God. No, Paul's communicating that Jesus was and is fully God in every way. From his outer appearance to his inner essence, Jesus was fully God in every respect. He was form of God. We think about where we were last week. Maybe you have some of these texts in your mind. How do we know that Jesus is God? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Jesus is the radiance, the shining forth of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. But John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And so as we consider and we interpret Scripture by Scripture, we, we know that what Paul's saying here can mean nothing less than Jesus is God. This is where the telling of the Christmas story must begin. Jesus as God in heaven with the Father. But then something happens. He becomes man. Keep reading. He was in the form of God, verse 6, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This is amazing. What was Jesus thinking before he came to earth? What was Jesus thinking? What was in his heart? What was in his mind before he was sent by the Father to be born of Mary? We're we're told here, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. What does that mean? Well, Paul's already told us that he's God. He's existing in heaven in all his glory. He's in a place of glory and honor, yet he was willing to experience a change. It's not that he had opportunity to grasp equality with God and decided not to. No, he's already God. He already has equality with God. But he holds it open-handedly. Now, he's never going to give up his position as God. But what he is willing to do is to humble himself, to leave the glory of heaven, and to live as a man. This phrase should evoke in us this view into the heart of God, this willingness of Jesus to humble himself. really should drive us to worship. Jesus is and has always been God. As God, he had every right to cling to his position in every way. 
Jesus, think about this church, had no obligation to do anything of the sort that he was about to do. He existed in heaven, all of his glory on display, all authority, all power, outside of time, in perfect peace, no pain, no potential pain. And yet we're told that he did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. His attitude could have been, I'm God, I will retain every advantage of God. Yet the verse tells us of a different attitude. Not clinging in selfish ambition, but willing to give himself to an undeserving people. I think this is where we may be tempted, if we're not careful, to lose the wonder of Christ and the wonder of Christmas. I think far too many of us, whether we would say it or not, there's a sense in which we believe that God owed it to us to come. That there was no option. He was coming. We forget that we did not deserve him coming and he did not have to come. But aren't you glad that Jesus did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped? But instead, he chose to come. So Paul describes it this way. Verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So we see Jesus is God, and yet he's willing to do something. He's willing to come out of the position he's in, in heaven, in the glory of the Father. He's willing to transition. So Paul uses this phrase, he emptied himself. What does that mean? What does it mean that instead of grasping to his position as God, he empties or pours himself out? I think it's best to start with what it does not mean, because this has been a source of heresy. What it does not mean is that Jesus ceased to be God. When Jesus emptied himself, he did not empty himself of his deity. Hebrews 1 again. As he came, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He comes to earth as God. What about Colossians 1, verse 19? Paul says that in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So it cannot mean that when he empties himself, he empties himself of his godness. Let me give you another one just to emphasize again, Jesus remained God. Consider the the story in Matthew chapter 1. The angel speaking to Joseph, telling him, The most unexpected news. The angel tells Joseph, Mary will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Which means what? God with us. When Jesus emptied himself, he did not give up his deity. Jesus remained fully God. But we still have the question to answer, don't we? Then what does it mean that he emptied himself? When Paul speaks of the emptying of Jesus, he's helping us consider the humility of Christ taking on flesh. He's stooping down and taking on manhood. 
So he empties himself, not in what he takes off, but in what he puts on. I've heard it said this way, and this has always stuck with me. Maybe it would be helpful to you. The incarnation of Jesus is a process of addition, not a process of subtraction. So while it's true that Jesus sets aside certain outward manifestations of his glory, he never ceases to be God. He comes not subtracting something of who he is, but adding something to who he is. And Paul actually, if we would just keep reading, he he tells us what it means that Jesus emptied himself. How did he empty himself? Three things. By taking the form of a servant. He emptied himself by coming in the likeness of men. He emptied himself by taking human form, humbling himself to the point of obedience. What does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? It does not mean that he ceased to be God. No, God came and lived among us. He is our Emmanuel. But he adds humanity. Let's consider those three phrases briefly. It's important for us to wrap our minds around who came, who was here with us. It says Jesus came in the form of a servant. Now, see the parallel with verse 6. He was in the form of God. He was living in heaven in all his glory, revealing the glory of God. He was in the form of God, and yet he now comes and takes what? The form of a servant. Paul's emphasizing the transition. And isn't this what Jesus said of himself and his reason for coming? Matthew chapter 20. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for a ransom for many. And I just want us to pause and back up a bit and remember Jesus in heaven in all his glory. What did he deserve? He came, he deserved to come and to be worshiped and to be praised and to be adored. He says, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. So he goes from form of God, a position of majesty, to form of a servant, a position of meekness. Not ceasing to be God. but taking on the form of a servant. And this is the Christmas story, isn't it? Santa Claus traveling from the North Pole doesn't hold a candle to this. God himself comes to earth, not to be served, but to serve. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 8, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by your his poverty, excuse me, he may become, wow, so that by you, his, you know what he means? He was rich and he became poor, so you who are poor might become rich. What does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? He emptied himself taking the form of a servant. He emptied himself by taking on the likeness of man. Again, incarnation is not subtraction of deity, but the addition of humanity. What we see is that he remained God and yet came in our likeness. And this is where it is. it's important that we, we do take time to remember the story of Mary and Joseph of a real birth and a real baby and a real manger. Paul tells us in Galatians, 
when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Remember, Jesus is the lawgiver, isn't he? But if he came as the lawgiver, he would never fulfill all righteousness. He was born not as the lawgiver, but as one living underneath the law so that he could keep the law so he could be our righteousness and we could be saved. I think it's been well established both last week and up to this point in Philippians 2, Jesus is God. But what I really want to push you to consider this morning is that he also became fully man. And yes, he retained that nature as God, but he took on a whole new nature, that of fully man, which means he went through infancy just like all of us. He was a toddler and a child and then a teenager. He had a particular height, a particular weight, a certain hair color. And he lived day after day, sunrise to sunset, experiencing the joys that the world brings and experiencing the pains that the world brings. Jesus experienced seasons, hot and cold, winter to spring. He experienced long days. As we've been in the Gospel of Mark, we've considered some of those long days he experienced. Sleepless nights. He had family, friends, and he certainly had enemies. Jesus knew what it was like to love someone. Jesus knew what it was like to lose someone he loved. He knew feelings of fairness and unfairness. Jesus knows what it feels like to live in justice and to live with injustice. He felt an experience just like you and I do, all that the world brings. And this is a part of the incarnation of Jesus becoming flesh, part of the Christmas story that some have gotten wrong. Jesus wasn't partially man. He wasn't an appearance of a man. No, he was fully man, really born, who could really be put to death. So part of us beholding Christ is trying to wrap our minds around both of these truths, the nature of God and the nature of man in one person. Form of God, yet not counting equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptying himself, taking the form of a servant, born in the likeness of men. In verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We're going to get to this more in just a minute when we talk about the why of the incarnation. But I want you to consider is the humility. He does not cease to be God, but he does take a position of submission. He comes in humble obedience. This hopefully answers the first part of the question for us. What is the incarnation? It's Jesus, God, very God, coming to earth, not ceasing to be God, but taking on a whole new nature, becoming fully man. So that when we think of baby in a manger, we see one person with two natures, fully God, fully man. I appreciated the summary of Wayne Grudem. He says, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. So he continued to remain fully God, but also becomes fully man. And we could stop there, and you 
should have enough just to stand in awe and wonder. What I really want to do this morning, more than describe the what, is to describe the why. Oh, and there's much to behold in Jesus when we consider the why. Why did God become man? Why does it matter for us? Why do we celebrate incarnation? I'll give you two reasons. First, we celebrate the incarnation because it is the only means by which we can be saved. Remember that third verse of the song? Born that men no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. He was born so that we can be born again. And this is the only way. If you have your Bibles, let's let's transition over to Hebrews chapter 2. See, I only had three weeks and I had five texts. Which means this morning you get an additional sermon. Hebrews chapter 2. Why did Jesus have to come as a man? Why do we celebrate the incarnation? Hebrews 2, starting in verse 14. It's the passage that we read together early in their service. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. Who are the children? The children. We, we have flesh and blood. Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things. So what we've already considered. We're flesh and blood. Jesus was not flesh and blood. But because we were flesh and blood, Jesus comes and he takes on the same things. He becomes flesh and blood just like you, just like me. I keep reading verse 15. That. Why did he do it? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Why did Jesus take on flesh and blood? He came ultimately so he could die. And so that through dying, he had accomplished two things. One, he would destroy the one with the power of death. And two, he would save all those who live as slaves to the fear of death. You know, it's been one of those years, most of us have probably thought more about death this year than in a normal year. Death is a universal experience. Throughout all time, throughout every race, throughout every class, we all die. But, though it's a universal experience, experienced by every person of every time, most of us spend our lives not thinking about it. Pushing it out of our minds as much as is possible. This year, maybe we've thought about it more because every night on the news, we have death counts. And so we spent the last nine months trying to limit death. And I, let me just say unequivocally, I'm thankful that we have the means to preserve life and to prevent death, at least for a while. It's a great blessing to live in a time of advanced medicine and disease prevention, but know this, church, friends. Death is coming for all of us. It's the result of living in a fallen world. We will die. And none of us has an answer for it. At least not on our own. What we see in Hebrews 2 is this is why Jesus came. Jesus came to put death 
to death. He took on flesh so he could save all those who have lived in slavery to the fear of death. He came so that you don't have to fear your own death and you don't have to fear the death of those you love who are in Christ. Now, is that to say that we are all going to go into death stoic and brave? No. There's going to be anxiety. There's going to be apprehension. And it's appropriate for us to fight for life. But Jesus came so we can face death with the hope of eternal life. But did I answer the question? Why was that necessary? Why did Jesus have to become man in order to save us from death? We can keep reading. Verse 16. Surely it's not angels that he helps. Jesus helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This is really the theme of the whole book of Hebrews. There's only one way that Jesus could come. See, we needed a representative. We needed someone who could stand in our place bearing the wrath of God that we deserve. We needed a substitute. You needed a substitute. The only way that happens is for Jesus to come, for, for someone to come who can stand in our place. And there's no person who can do it because all of us have sinned. I'll read for you what a good theologian wrote about 900 years ago that's helpful for me at least. He says, it could not have been done unless man paid what he owed for sin. He had to pay God. But the debt was so great that while man alone owed it, God alone could pay it. So it was necessary for God to take manhood into the unity of his person so that he who in his own nature ought to pay and could not should enter into the person who could. Verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he could be the merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, making propitiation for our sins. That's why we read in Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? So he could redeem those who were under the law so that you and I might receive adoption as sons. I put it on your notes. C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity said this, and I've always loved this putting together of words to express great truth. The son of God became man to enable men to become sons of God. The Son of God became man and to enable men to become sons of God. And this is why we celebrate the incarnation. It's why Timothy says there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man. And then he says this, a man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. Paul says in Romans 8, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. This is why we need the incarnation. 
We need someone who could be born so that we would no longer die. Someone who would be born so we could have second life. You probably could have guessed this reason, right? Why the incarnation? We needed someone to stand in our place. But I wanted to give you another one, and maybe one that you've not thought about as much. What benefit do we get from Jesus in flesh? Yes, we get salvation, and we praise God for that. That is our hope. But what about today? What benefit do we have today from Jesus becoming man? Look at verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You know, one of the common complaints I hear from people is that God's too distant. The question is asked, how could God really understand what I'm going through? Does he have any idea what it feels like to be tempted to suffer, to live through the ups and downs of life? One of the beautiful implications of the incarnation is that the answer to that question is yes. Jesus understands. Not only because he's God and he's omniscient, that would be enough, but he became intimately acquainted with our pain. Jesus does not just know of our pain cognitively. He felt our pain in the flesh. He lived as you live. He suffered as you suffer. He was tempted as you are tempted. It says there in verse 18, he's able to help. And we know by virtue of his coming that he's willing to help. He did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Jesus is both able and willing. John Owen said it this way, when you go to someone for help, you always ask two questions. First, is the person I'm going to willing to help me? And second, is he able to help me? We need to know that Christ is both willing and able to meet all of our needs. And not only that, but he's come in solidarity with our suffering. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 4. This is where we'll end. Hebrews 4, starting in verse 14, a passage that you probably know well. But I just want to encourage you to think this is one of the reasons for Christmas. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is so significant. Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. How? Because he's been tempted in every respect as you have. This is the answer to the question, does Jesus understand? He understands. The reason that Jesus is in such close solidarity with us is because he's experienced the same things as we have. He has journeyed the journey that we journey. 
appreciated Dane Ortland's illustration. He says that it's not that Jesus can relieve us from our troubles the way doctors prescribe medicine to relieve our pain. When we have pain, we go to a doctor and they give us medicine, which relieves our pain. The doctor is able to help. He said that's not, a, a, not the best picture though. The better picture is going to a doctor who gives us the medicine, but before any relief comes, lets us know that he has endured the same disease and he understands our weakness. Not only is he able to help, but he sympathizes in a personal way with our weaknesses. Friends, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And not even just one who cognitively sympathizes or understands, but one who in every respect, because he came and took on flesh and lived as a man, understands. So in light of 2020, Jesus is not aloof from where we are. He understands racial divides because he lived in a racially divided society. He understands rampant virus, the stresses of life, the difficulties of relationships, and the loss of loved ones. He is not cold to these things. In fact, he went to great lengths to enter into our experience. This is good news. He understands. And not only does he understand, but he's able to help. There's lots of people who have felt the way you feel but who can do nothing about it. Jesus has felt what you feel and he's able to help. So we find comfort in his solidarity with our pain and hope in the fact that he's the one who can help. Say that again. We find comfort in his solidarity with our pain and hope in the fact that he is the one who can help. He saves us from our sins and he brings us into the presence of the Father. He, by taking on flesh, has reconciled us to God. He has opened wide the door so we have access to God, very God, so that in the heat of the moment, in the pains of life, we can go with confidence to the throne of God and find mercy and grace. That's what we see in verse 16. Because of Jesus, because of incarnation, because of death, burial, and resurrection, because of forgiveness, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He is the one who is able to help. He is the one who is willing to help. Because though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. I knew I could do it. Friends, this should give us hope. God is able. God is willing. He is with you in your struggle, and he is able to carry you through it. He has walked where you walk, and if you are his, you have the assurance that you will be with him in the end. 
Your path may be hard, but it is the path of salvation. Jesus walked a hard road, but it ended at the cross and the resurrection. And ours is the same. We sang it earlier. His resurrection is a foretaste of our own. Because he lives, we too will live. Because he was raised, we too will be raised. This is why we celebrate the incarnation. We've covered a lot of ground. We started with a a theology and transitioned to hopefully what's been a practical help based on that theology. My hope is that you're more mindful than when we started of why Jesus is worth beholding. Why he's worth your attention, your worship, and your obedience. It's a special time of year. And I'll say what I said last week. This is a time of year when there's so many built-in reminders, prompts all around us of Christ. The trees, the music, the lights, the food, the decorations. May they all be reminders that God became flesh to be our savior, to be our sympathetic high priest, to be the one who knows, who is able, who is willing to help. Christ, by highest heavens adored, Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail, incarnate, Deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us.